Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akil Amara. Akil's at Yale today. Hello, Akil. Hi, Andy. So today it's the two of us and the audience, and so we're going to bring the audience in. But before we do, we've got a correction. And because this is a correction that came to our attention and we're adding it on after recording the podcast, you may note a slight mismatch in our audio, but it's in the interest of accuracy. So last week we referred to Governor Linwood Holton on, of Virginia as a, as a Democrat. In fact, he was a Republican, so we apologize for that error. And it was brought to our attention by our friend Stephen Suits, who, as you might recall, was a principal figure at the dedication of the Hugo Black Memorial in Alabama, uh, which America's Constitution was honored to attend, and Steve hosted us there. And we recorded a, a live podcast there, and Akil gave a dedication address. And Steve was the most wonderful host, and we thank him again for that, as well as for this correction. Meanwhile, Professor Kermit Roosevelt, who was on this podcast for two episodes recently, is in the news today as the New York Times columnist Jamel Bowie has an entire op-ed featuring Professor Roosevelt's new book, The Nation That Never Was, which, as you know, we covered in depth with the professor. So congratulations to him, to Professor Roosevelt. Okay, back to our planned podcast topics. Um, last time we spoke briefly about the uh, what's up with Moore versus Harper and whether or not uh, it's in danger of... Uh, not being decided because of mootness or um, or some other reason it could be because of, it could receive a dig, um, and we went through this. But uh, Professor Moore has some more comments on uh, on mootness that he wanted to share with us before we get to the questions. Yeah, I think I should have put the mootness issue in a slightly broader context, the way we always try to do on a, a Marcus Constitution. So. What is the point of mootness doctrine and of Article Three rules of justiciability more generally? These are rules rooted in the words of the Constitution's Article Three about case and controversy. And the basic idea is that in the Anglo, in the American system at least, judges decide cases brought by litigants. And litigants litigate their own rights and duties. In general, judges don't simply opine about constitutionalism or law generally in the air, in the abstract. They decide cases between litigants. And litigants are people, typically, someone claiming that my own rights have been violated, so I come to court typically as a plaintiff, and they've been violated by this specific person or entity, the defendant. So I'm uh, claiming a right against this other party who owed me a duty, a legal duty that was breached. And why do we have, why do we insist on that? Partly because many rights are alienable. Not, you know, you've heard very famously about certain inalienable rights that can't be sold or given away, but many rights actually can be. I have a right to a piece of property, but I can sell that piece of property to you. I have a right to my body, but I can choose to hire myself out as a, as a day laborer. 
So many rights are waivable. I have some money and I can choose to give it to you. And in exchange, you'll give me a bag of potato chips or that beautiful um, uh, mansion uh, uh, of yours that, uh, that I covet. And part of the value of a right is sometimes the ability to transfer it or to alienate it, to waive it. I don't want to actually push my right in this context. I just want to move on with my life. So because of that, courts generally require litigants to come to court and they have to have a certain legal relationship to a legal issue. They have to have standing. They have to have their own cause of action, their own case. And so courts generally won't let them just hypothesize um, facts of, of the world. Now, here's why mootness is slightly different from that. In a case, mootness is about when and not who. Let me tell you first about its arguably symmetric cousin, ripeness. So ripeness says, okay, Akil, you're the right litigant, but you're, you're coming to court too soon. If the defendant does certain things, that will violate your rights. And then you can come and complain, but they haven't done it yet. At least they haven't taken uh, that last step such that you can say your rights have already been violated. So you have have to wait. You have to bide your time. Your case is not ripe. Okay. And so, and and the who can blur into the when sometimes because you could say, well, in the future, I'm a different person than I am now in certain respects. But ripeness is about the thought. A case can be unripe because the defendant hasn't done enough to, to crystallize a legal claim. The big point, and, and, and why do courts hold off? Because maybe the defendant never will do that. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll take that last step. And then why do the court needs, to, why does the court need to get involved at all? Your rights never will have been violated. And, and we can save some time and money and economize on uh, judicial resources by focusing on other people whose rights actually already have been violated. Fine. What's mootness? Mootness is often thought of as the symmetric counterpart. Ripeness is, oh, it's too early. Mootness is, oh, it's too late. The case has already ended. Uh, something has happened and, and you know, it's no longer a live dispute. The North Carolina court is going to be doing something uh, different going forward. So why do we need to get involved? The North Carolina Supreme Court. Mootness is different because something really did happen before to you, the plaintiff. And and we're not making up the facts and you're the right rights holder and you're bringing it against the person that actually you're claiming violated the, the right. And the lawyers argued the case very vigorously, presenting the best points uh, to the judges. They had skin in the game because actually there really were uh, genuine facts can concentrate the, the legal mind. So we should be hesitant, I believe, to declare cases moot, especially on appeal when because it's not symmetric. Something really did happen to this litigant who has a cause of action, brought the right kind of lawsuit against the right kind of defendant um, with real facts and lawyers arguing the thing very vigorously. Now, in saying all of this, I'm actually arguing on behalf. I'm saying the North Carolina legislature is entitled to a day in court. Now, I think they should lose on the merits, but but they're saying that what the North Carolina Supreme Court already did um, was improperly limiting the rights that they have under the Constitution because they're the state legislature, they're the independent state legislature, blah, blah, blah. And I think they deserve to lose on that. 
but they're the claim, they're the, the, the person who claims the right. They're bringing it against someone, the, the entity that they're saying is infringing upon all that. Maybe that entity is not going to be doing that going forward, but something really did happen in the past, which is why at least as a matter of Article 3, as a matter of the Constitution, the court, in my view, still has the authority to rule, which is why, by the way, what I said last uh, last time, Mootness was not treated as a constitutional constraint on judicial power until the late 1960s. Before that, it was just one prudential factor that a court could take into consideration if it didn't want to hear a case because it had other things to attend to. And that's closer to my suggestion that even today, if they don't want to hear it, they don't have to, they could dismiss the cases improvidently granted, dismiss the writ of certiorari as improvidently granted. I mean, it seems like, you know, part of this has to do with one of the purposes of law, which is that people need to know how to behave. So, um, you know, here here we have a set of facts that actually occurred. So it seems like, well, if it occurred, it could occur again. And you'd like to know, you know, what or something like it could occur. So you'd like to know how to behave, given that that it was unclear enough to bring to give rise to this dispute, you know, where people, you know, disagreed on how you should behave, you know, you could have that again. And I think that in terms of ripeness, there's also a... um, Andy, Andy, just hang on, just hold that thought, because it's utterly brilliant. You just intuitively came up with the court's formulation of the exception to mootness, which is articulated as an issue that's capable of repetition, but might evade review. And that's just what you said. Now, by the way, if it were some constitutional prohibition, how can you make an exception to it? It's not a constitutional prohibition. Let me uh, go go back to Roe versus Wade, because Roe actually raised this issue. Okay, Texas limited the ability of Jane Roe to get an abortion. And on the the facts, as the court was told them, we now know that actually maybe some of the facts weren't quite as represented to the court. But let's just take the case as the court actually thought the facts were, which is that Jane Roe had gotten pregnant um, involuntarily, actually, um, and Texas was limiting her ability to, to get an abortion, and she claimed she had a constitutional right to get an abortion. She's a rights holder. She's the one whose liberty is being infringed upon. So she has standing to bring the lawsuit. But time passed. The case worked its way up through the system. By the time it reached the Supreme Court, her pregnancy had ended. And the claim was, ah, the case is moot because she's no longer pregnant. But the issue is capable of repetition yet evading review. Um, and there are two ways of thinking about it. She, in theory, maybe could get pregnant again, although actually given the facts, that was less likely. But other people are going to be pregnant. And it may take more than nine months to litigate a case all the way from trial all the way to the Supreme Court. And there is a usefulness in having the Supreme Court weigh in on this issue. And so now you see there's actually this was I know I'm getting deep into the weeds, but it's such an interesting technical issue. If she had never been pregnant before. She could not have said, listen, I may get pregnant. It's going to take more than nine months to litigate the case. I'm actually abstaining from consensual sex in all sorts of ways because I'm really worried that contraception will fail and I'll get pregnant. 
the court would say, oh, that's not ripe. Just wait. You know, no, your rights haven't been violated yet. And you can't come to court before you're, you're, you're pregnant, even if it's affecting your sex life today. And the reason we know that the court said that is there was a married couple called the Doe's who argued just that. They said, Mrs. Doe has a medical issue. She can't carry a pregnancy to term without threatening her health, maybe even her life. They're a married couple. They're, they're having sex. They're using precaution and birth control, but that could fail. And and the possibility of birth control failure, in which case she's not going to be able to get an abortion, is really affecting her current happiness. And the court said, that's not good enough. Okay? that's It's unripe. And, and I'm thinking, and, and now you see, ripeness is going to d- depend in part on what sorts of interests you think are legally relevant. If the only interest is the ability to get an abortion, well... The government hasn't interfered with that yet, but if it's about your marital happiness, um, and and Harry Blackman says, like, apart from an injury to their uh, marital happiness, plaintiffs have nothing. I'm thinking, like, apart from the shooting, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you enjoy the play? Apart from the fact that this Texas law is screwing up your love life, you know, every day, every week, every month, that seems like a pretty, seems like a pretty big thing if you think that the Griswold case is actually relevant, which is all about actually conjugal happiness. You see, so Blackman messed up, in my view, on all of these technical issues. The does were unripe, said the court. But Jane Roe was allowed to bring her case, carry it forward because it was capable of repetition yet evading review. She was able to bring, even though she wasn't pregnant a second time and might never become pregnant a second time. She actually claimed she was a lesbian. Um, so she was much less likely to ever be, and who had been raped much less likely to ever become pregnant than the does who said we're having sex and there's, you know, we're using contraception, but it can fail. So what made the does different than Jane Roe? Going forward, they were more likely to actually be intruded upon, but the court said, unripe, it's not good enough. The only reason Jane Roe was allowed to proceed is that she had once been pregnant her rights arguably had been, you know, limited. Her ability to get an abortion at the minute that she wanted was being limited. Okay. But that's true, Andy, of every moot case, arguably moot case, that something happened. So from the point of view of future, she was more, um, and the does were more likely to suffer an injury, but that wasn't good enough. The only difference is from the point of view of the past, Jane Roe had been intruded upon and the does not at all, but that's true. Most of the time in moot cases, that's true in Moore versus Harper. And now you see why I don't love an extremely broad, robust understanding of mootness. Because the court actually, there are two issues in their formulation of capable of repetition yet evading review. Here are the two issues, which aren't always teed up cleanly, or at least weren't back then. Is it capable of repetition to you, the plaintiff, or um, just to someone in society? And does it matter if it's an individual suit or a class action? Because if it's a class action, maybe it's not going to, it's not going to be repeated to you, but some, some other person is, is going to happen. So to whom you know, is that repetition? And now, and what kind of, of review might evade? Judicial review at all? Just at, at, by a trial court? Maybe a trial court can decide the case within a nine month pregnancy or might it evade Supreme Court review because it's going to take longer for a case to go all the way up from a lower court to the Supreme Court. And in Roe, the U.S. Supreme Court said, oh, no, it's, it's not just important that you actually be able to get to court. 
it's important that the court you be that someone be able to get to at least maybe not you but someone be the supreme court because we're the supreme court and we need to rule on this so we're creating an exception capable of repetition yet evading review to this constitutional rule that I think they also just created, mootness. So these two things kind of counterbalance uh, each other. They maybe shouldn't have made mootness a constitutional rule in the first place, but at least when they did, they created this exception. And Andy, it's just the one that you intuited. You just, you said, well, you know, um, there is a value in the Supreme Court reaching the merits on on important issues so that we all know what our legal rights and duties are. Just so. And of course, we're sitting here with Moore versus Harper, and we're saying, okay, the 2024 election is coming, and we want these issues to be settled. Right, right, mm -hmm. right. And that might be true even if it's never going to repeat in North Carolina, because there's Pennsylvania, there's Wisconsin, there's Arizona, et cetera, et cetera. You know, in terms of ripeness, I think... uh, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine who works for a publishing company. Uh, he's a general counsel. And he was telling me about a case where, I don't have all the details, maybe we'll have them on or something, but um, where they, as a, as a company, as a publisher, went to court to um, get a declaratory judgment because they wanted to publish a book that might go afoul of like a child pornography law or something like that. And they didn't want to do it if it was going to be, you know, uh, but, you know, on the other hand, they didn't want their author to be censored or whatever. So, so it was, uh, and they, and the court a, took a decla- it. I mean, they, de- and they got a declaratory judgment actually. A, a declaratory judgment is very interesting because sometimes what a declaratory judgment does is invert the typical litigation um, order of plaintiff and defendant. In a typical, what's called a coercive lawsuit, a plaintiff brings a suit against a defendant seeking, let's say, damages for something that the defendant has already done. In certain kinds of declaratory judgments, the posture is reversed. Instead of doing something and then hoping I'll win a lawsuit, I come to court first. I sue the person who who might actually bring a damage action against me and say, I seek a declaratory judgment that you can't sue me for damages. I seek it because you don't own the copyright, you know, because this isn't defamatory or libelous, because actually the patent that you claim is invalid. And so I actually would not be an infringer if I took a certain action. But instead of taking the action first, and, and hoping that I'll win when you sue me for damages. Instead, I come to court first. And the court acknowledges for a hundred years that declaratory judgments serve a useful function by helping to clarify what the law is for people who, who need legal clarity. But not anyone can bring a declaratory judgment for anything. Typically, just to be clear, this is connected to standing, a declaratory judgment plaintiff would typically be someone who would be a coercive action defendant. And the person that is on the other side is the, the coercive action plaintiff. And so declaratory judgment does two things. It accelerates the timing of the lawsuit and it flips the parties. And it's done precisely so that I don't have to eat the thing first because it looks like a mushroom to me and not a toadstool. But, you know, I, it's pretty risky if I eat, have to eat it first. And if I'm wrong, I'm dead. Mm-hmm. Um, if I if I publish first and and I get sued for libel or defamation or 
copyright infringement, or if I use the invention first and someone and they and they get sued uh, for for patent infringement. So that's what a declaratory judgment is all. About. And it's Andy, again, you have such a legalistic mind. That's very analogous to the functional considerations that go into the exception to mootness doctrine. There is a public purpose that is served if the court makes clear what the law is because it, the issue is going to recur perhaps in the future. Okay. Well, very interesting. So um, everything you always wanted to know about mootness. Um, um, so anyway, uh, let's get to some some questions. So these are a, a potpourri, but they mostly have to do with uh, things that we've discussed in the past. So um, these are things that, you know, popular episodes, we've got a lot of questions on them. So that's kind of how we chose them, or if they were just very interesting. So let's start with this one from uh, Greg Varner. So his question, um, would Professor Amar's exclusionary rule doctrine allow fruit from torture? And then they quote, he cites a New York Times article about the USS Cole case. So this is uh, someone who's accused of um, sabotage or being the mastermind behind the sabotage of the coal. This is now 23 years later, and the guy still hasn't uh, had a verdict. Um, but anyway, uh, so they caught this guy they think was the mastermind. They tortured him. Everybody acknowledges that they tortured him, that, or maybe they maybe it doesn't meet some technical definition, but they waterboarded him. They did all sorts of stuff. And now um, he's going to be on trial in the Biden administration, uh, said we're going to have as a matter of policy that we're not going to allow the use of any evidence that was obtained by torture. Okay, and here's the rest of the question. Even if we had a civil liability regime for state actor accountability, so you could you know sue if you were tortured, um, there isn't much to deter bad actors from Fourth and Fifth Amendment violations. And he says this because he believes the jurors are not really going to reward a murderer for violations of his Fourth and Fifth Amendment violations. So I think there's a couple of questions here for you, Akil. One is, how would you apply your exclusionary rule doctrine to evidence acquired from torture? But then, what about the fruit from torture? So you get a lead you invest from the torture, you investigate it, can you use that evidence? Okay, and the and, and the Biden administration, the judge in this case actually has said he's going to reserve judge reserve ruling on that question. And then finally, what about this thing where the, the guy is so egregious that a, it's, there really is no civil uh, remedy because even if you sued, the juror would never be sympathetic. Maybe you have to keep the actions that think this guy did uh, secret from the jury or something like that. Okay. So I think it's a brilliant set of questions. They're among the hardest questions from my position on the exclusionary rule. And so let's talk about them. And just to repeat, my position on the exclusionary rule is the position held by every founder and by every court in America for the first hundred years. So constitutionally, there is no exclusionary rule. Here's what one court in England has never had one. Here's what England once said in a case is called, I can't remember, it's Rex, I think it's Regina v. Lethem. Um, I used to say Rex versus Lethem, but actually I'm realizing, no, it has to be Regina versus Lethem because it's 1861 and it's Queen Victoria. Evidence of guilt was acquired by tricking a 
feeble-minded suspect into identifying where the loot was stashed. And the defense attorney objects that the, the, the suspect was kind of taken advantage of in, in certain ways. And here's what the court says. It says, it matters not how you get it, you being the government. It matters not how you get it. If you steal it even, it would be admissible. It's relevant evidence. That's the question. And that's how the founders thought about it. And that's true even if a suspect or a defendant was roughed up, even if they were tortured. Now, that's shocking to people, and I want to actually explain the logic behind the position. It's a great question because it seems like, aha, they got Professor Mark. No, au contraire. Okay, once you actually understand the whole thing, and I'm going to elaborate it, and oh, some of you might think at first I'm a cold-hearted snake, but just wait till you get to the end of the legal analysis, um, rather than just letting your emotions carry you forward. So, first of all, let's dis- make some distinctions. If we beat a confession out of someone, of course we don't use that because the confession might be deeply unreliable because if someone is inflicting, for me personally, just even a modest amount of pain because I have a very low pain threshold and I'm quite a, a wimp and a coward, I'll it's confess to The dental to exclusionary rule. <laughs> <laughs> is it safe? Um, <laughs> um, I think uh, that uh, with um, uh, uh, Dustin, Dustin Hoffman, Hoffman and Lawrence Olivier in Marathon Right, Man. right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I won't go into all the details, audience, but Andy has some um, some real uh, dental issues. Let's Indeed. just let's just put it that way. And and he keeps telling me it has something to do with. I'm not making this up. The fact that he's redheaded. He actually, there is apparently some correlation here, but. Yeah, but I was hoping that digress. when I went gray, that it would go away, but it turns out that it didn't. So. <laughs> okay. Okay. So people will confess to things that they didn't do and words are unreliable. And I take, uh, 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 and I, I now just rec- um, remind everyone of the episodes we did on Fifth Amendment self incrimination. So words are excluded precisely because they might be unreliable. But what about actually words that lead to physical evidence, that lead to finding the loot, that lead to finding the murder victim's body with the suspect's blood and fingerprints all over it? To repeat, a Mars world, the framer's world, permits all of that to come in. There's no exclusion if it's reliable. It matters not how you get it. If you steal it, even it'd be admissible. Now let's go through some of the, 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 the points. Greg said, well, if there is some sort of damage remedy, Greg, damn it, there has to be. Because if there's not, it's open season on innocent people. Don't you understand that that guy in Memphis, they, they, they didn't just beat him within an inch of his life. They beat the life out of him and he hadn't done anything. So there has to be a civil remedy for him because the exclusionary rule does nothing for him because he's innocent. So damn it, we have to have remedies for innocent people. And the person who has advocated for that more than anyone else that I know is yours truly. Um, and at the very same, this is the opening paragraphs of the very first article I write as a law professor, because the very same, in my view, stupid judges 
who gave you the exclusionary rule, cut back on civil remedies for innocent people by creating things that the framers didn't have, like sovereign immunity and qualified immunity and, and this kind of immunity and that immunity. Damn it. If you violate someone's rights, you should pay. And if you're a government official, the government will and you're doing what the government tells you to do. They'll have to actually indemnify you because if they don't, no one will work for the government. OK, so what's the bill? Right now, this um, I think may be going to be passing that Joe Biden actually advocated. It's a bill that, among other things, provides for more robust civil damages when the cops actually misbehave. And I say, thank goodness I've been urging this forever. Actually, conservatives on the court have been raising questions about this. Uh, Clarence Thomas Neil Gorsuch, conservative scholars, my my student Will Bode had been talking about getting rid of qualified immunity. Truthfully, um, the Cato Institute, I think, or another uh, um, conservative uh, think tank, I can't remember, litigating um, entity, I can't remember um, which one it was, has agitating this question. They're my allies on this because I believe in civil damages when the cops misbehave. The Rodney King case. Okay, and in fact, in a Mars world, the more innocent you are, the more you're going to recover, actually. And civil rights lawyers are going to want to take your case because they're going to get their contingency fee. You're going to see billboards saying, you know, been roughed up by the cops, call 1-800-SUE-EM. And that's good because innocent people have to have civil remedies. And the exclusionary rule to repeat doesn't do anything for them because by hypothesis, they're faultless. Now you say, okay, um, I begin to see that. Um, but as a practical matter, if the cops, if I'm guilty and they rough me up, no jury is going to give me anything. So Andy, you're right. In principle, Akil says that co- the jury shouldn't be told whether you're guilty or not, because that's not relevant to whether the cops actually be- behave properly or not. I also believe that person bringing a civil action should have a choice of a jury trial or a judge trial. A, a judge trial, a judge, you know, at least in principle, is going to be set, able to set aside in her mind, um, his mind, what is legally irrelevant, which is, you know, whether you're guilty or not, they may still may have violated your civil rights. Let's actually keep playing with this hypothetical because uh, until the 1950s, it was Hornbook law in, in the Supreme Court. That even in situations where the government used extreme force, uh, the, there was no, not, they, the, the courts didn't exclude evidence. One thing is there may, even if they find evidence, there may be no causal link between the excessive force and the finding of evidence. Maybe um, in searches, yes, but in just beating people up, maybe, maybe not. That's causally linked to, to finding evidence. But now let's imagine that there is a causal link. The cops wouldn't have found the dead girl's body, and she is a dead girl. And I'm not making this up. There are a lot of cases, but they find the dead girl's body with your blood all over it and your fingerprints all over it because they roughed you up. Are we going to actually exclude that body forever on a theory that the body would, and maybe the body, body never would have been found, but, but wow. That's punishing the family of the victim. Maybe, you know, it's, it's, it's putting other girls at risk. If you're a serial predator, as many p- people are who, who, who do these things 
to little girls. And I'm not making up the facts of the cases. You know, we talked about the Flippo case. There are many, many others. Coolidge versus New Hampshire. It involved David Souter as assistant attorney general in New Hampshire. A, a guy did horrible things to a, a, a little girl and got away with it because of the exclusionary rule. Now, let's take fiction. So I think it's Magnum Force, not Dirty Harry. So um, and I think it's like in Keysar Stadium and a Clint Eastwood thinks that the girl might be alive. He's trying to get evidence. I mean, he's trying to find out where she is and he's applying, you know, physical force. He's like stepping on a guy's hands and, and, and increasing the pressure because he wants to know, you know, where's the girl now? And, and the guy uh, now in the story, it turns out that she's already dead. But let's imagine that they find her just in time because actually, let's imagine even torture was used. Are we going to say now that because the cops would never have found the girl alive, you know, but for, let's just stipulate, but for the utterly improper, grotesque use of force because that we're not going to actually allow her to testify. Because that's fruit of the poisonous tree, the exclusioner. We never have found her alive. And she's going to testify against the person who did this to her. Really? You know, the Constitution requires that. Let's, you know, interrogate the, the matter even further. From a certain point of view, you see, we would have never found her at all, maybe. Um, but for this use of torture. So do we give her back to the kidnapped victim? Turn around, close our eyes, count to a hundred thousand, let you go, let, let him go. Cause the government in some profound sense is profiting from its own wrong when it finds the girl. Cause that's what they wanted to do. If stolen goods were found, do we give them back to the thief rather than to the, the person from whom the goods were stolen? Cause we would have never found them, but for the improper use of force. Now, finally, let's go back to Amar's and, and see, the founders, they they weren't moral pygmies. They actually had thought things through in a certain way. They just had a different vision. Amar's world is one in which you're supposed to actually, if I ask you a certain question, I'm being the government, you have to answer it under the Fifth Amendment, under Amar's understanding of the Fifth Amendment. I can't use your testimony directly against you, but I can use it to, for any leads whatsoever, including finding the stolen goods and the loot, finding the girl, finding the fingerprints. You actually have a legal obligation in a Mars world to actually answer truthfully because the law is entitled to every person's evidence. And you only have a narrow testimonial immunity of certain words that won't be introduced against you because they may be unreliable. For example, like if I say, to, you know, you might say, um, like, I killed her and it felt good. Okay, well, maybe it didn't feel good. Maybe you're just saying that after the fact. You know, I intended to do it. Well, you're going to be a perhaps an unreliable reporter of past mental states. So those words don't get introduced against you, in part because they might be unreliable, but her her body would be introduced against you, even if we found it because of words that we legally obliged you to say. Now, all that said, I don't believe in torture. And if you think torture is just so unthinkable that we have to have remedies above and beyond the things that I've identified in order to express our moral outrage about this kind of horrible misconduct, 
fine. My plea would simply be don't constitute, don't read those into the existing constitution because they're not there. Let's be cautious about constitutionalizing that. We can have actually a statute. Let's try to think about what the boundaries of that statute might be. This might be the Biden administration's policy. And if you don't like that, you can vote for a different administration. What I've just said, you know, in this entire discussion is really about the constitutional issues about the Fourth and the Fifth Amendments. Yeah, I think the bottom line is that we're using the evidentiary system and and the courtroom process to create a set of incentives to try to control the behavior of policemen and other federal aid you know officials, and that may not be the right place to try to set those incentives. That we're better off you know legislating them. And uh, and then let the uh, let the court system work. The, I mean, the analogy for me would be, you know, as a as an ex doctor, um, I don't think that the malpractice insurance malpractice system uh, in courts is the right way to to provide incentives for doctors' good behavior. You know, you're better off with professional licensing organizations and things like that, um, and you know, real peer review instead of you know. Sort of limited peer review that's, that's that designed court, to protect doctors. So, so again, yes. the same general idea. Yeah. Um, let's, if we want to legislate it, let's legislate it. But meanwhile, the court system is about determining truth. So let's use the tools we have to to get to that truth. Right. So I do think if we're talking about incentives, you're talking about a tort system or an administrative regulation system. And I do think the criminal justice system does a bad job of trying to to get all these incentives right. By the way, if the torture leads to evidence, not just against the tortured person, but all sorts of other people, you know, who are also involved, let's say in a, a slavery ring or something like that, how broadly are we going to exclude? Optimal deterrence is unlikely to be reached in a exclusionary rule world that was in fact never created for deterrence purposes but judges after the fact came up with that as an as an explanation for what they were actually doing which was interpreting the fourth amendment and the fifth amendment self-incrimination clause in a certain way but you're unlikely to get optimal deterrence through an exclusionary rule system in a different kind of system administrative law or court law, if you're not getting enough deterrence, you just actually increase the damage multiplier. In antitrust, it's treble damages, but we could make it, if we think actually we're not finding enough violations just because they're hard to prove, we could make it quintuple damages. If we're getting too much deterrence, we could ratchet down the multiplier. We can do all sorts of things in tort and administrative law that we can't do if we simply have this very crude logic, government violated the constitution, therefore evidence must be excluded. Okay, so very good. But um, it's a but, great question. Yeah, you know, especially that, because you know torture is the extreme example, the, the most egregious behavior you can case. imagine. You know, yes. and and I I do think that. Um, by the way, I'm completely against torture. One of the reasons I mean, we talked about it as being you know immoral is there's also a certain aspect to it in terms of uh, the military. You know that we don't want our are soldiers tortured, you know, when the, when they are captured and things like that as well. Right. It's not just that we don't torture to protect our troops from being tortured because the other side, you see, may not actually abide by our moral code. But I want to, I, I'm opposed to torture 
because I care about our troops for a slightly different reason. You know, it's not because I actually think if we don't torture, they're safe from uh, being tortured, because I wish it were when they're up against ISIS or whatever, but that's not true. I um, am opposed to torture, even in the military context, because I care about troops, because I don't want them ever to be torturers, Mm -hmm. because that does horrible things to their own souls. And they might, in the in the moment, think that this is justified, but they're going to have to live with themselves forever. And I don't want them to have nightmares and cold sweats and have huge guilt and remorse five years later, 10 years later, when they realize what they've done. So I don't want my you know, fellow Americans who are bravely putting themselves in harm's way, I don't want to ask them to do things that actually um, are immoral um, and that they may very well come to see are immoral. That's a different, you know, take. Right. Well, the obvious analogy is to slavery and, and, uh, you know, that, that uh, masters are themselves corrupted by, uh, you know, by by being, and, and Frederick Douglass, you know, says this, in his autobiography, many people say it, but he, he says yes. it um, most profoundly. And Lincoln says it too. Um, and the other thing, but Lincoln also, by the way, according to John Witt, um, who's been on this podcast in his great book, uh, Lincoln's Code, um, you know, he talks about the fact that he says that Lincoln believed that, you know, in, in putting forth what General Order 100, you know, the, the, the code about treatment of prisoners and, and everything else, laws of war, that, uh, he did believe that it would make a difference in terms of the South's treatment of the of particularly yes. African Americans when they would be captured. Now, it didn't really work True. out that way, as we know, Fort Pillow and you know lots of other. But but he at least had that thought in mind. Okay, so let's yes. let's move. But that on. might not be true in every situation. And I want to take Greg asked a morally serious question, mm-hmm. and I don't want to fudge it by just you know saying there's always kind of a happy ending to these things. No, it's possible that we tie our own hands from torturing and the other side, you know, won't do the same. We should still tie our own hands because there are certain things that we can't do because we're the good guys. Mm-hmm. Just to go back to Greg, that the, just the big the biggest point of all is Greg, you have to have a system of civil liability and it could be administrative review as well because if you don't have that it's open season on innocent people and we've just seen literally we've just seen what that looks like in memphis right i mean that's a that's a powerful point that the exclusionary rule does nothing for you if you're innocent um yes okay uh so that was a heavy question now let's go to a somewhat more lighthearted but still informative question hopefully this is from uh, brad k did not give his full last name um professor amar if you could go back in time and experience one 24-hour period of constitutional history firsthand what day would you choose and why of course the 24-hour periods doesn't have to be only one calendar day but there you go so I can't intervene in history. I can't, you know, go back and say, don't go to the theater tonight, Mr. Lincoln. So I can't do that. I'm just observing. And Heisenberg, you know, you know, says, well, even to observe is to affect the phenomena sometimes, you know, for reasons having to do with light particles and other things. But let's just imagine, you know, um, all of that could be solved. And so it's just like in Harry Potter, where you are just dipping your head into the fountain and just seeing what has happened in the past. I think I have two. And one is from the founding and one is from the Reconstruction. 
So I think the most important this constitutional event is the adoption of the Constitution. And I think the most dramatic moment, which Kim and Andy and I talked about very recently, was when New York Federalists insisted that ratification be in toto and forever, at the risk of losing everything in New York. Because the Anti-Federalists said, we will vote yes on the condition that we can withdraw if there's no Bill of Rights in a suitable time. And that was very tempting to the Federalists because they don't know they have the votes. But the risk of losing everything, they say, no, the deal is in total. I would have loved to have watched that and maybe even been, you know, just uh, seeing the Federalists think about this because they, they, they're risking losing everything for this key point of principle that it's indissoluble. Once you're in, you're in. That would have been really interesting to observe because they're sweating it, I'm sure. The second thing I think, and, and I'm a Hamilton man, and this is Alexander Hamilton making the decision and quoting a letter from James Madison and, oh, John Jay is there, and the world is watching. That's, I think, the dramatic moment. And I didn't really talk about it initially, and Andy actually, and when we had the podcast with Kim, says, why don't you remind everyone of that moment? Because that is the dramatic moment. It's like Mahalia Jackson and Martin Luther King at the very end, you know, she actually is behind him and she says, tell him about the dream, Martin. <laughs> that, uh, actually, no, because she, she's heard the speech before and he's a preacher man and he's actually beginning to like hit his stride and she she can feel it, you see, because great preachers have a great kind of chemistry with the chorus. And she's a singer. She and she's she's feeling the energy and the vibe. And, you know, it's almost musical, you know, like, like jazz or something. And she says, you know, tell him about the dream, Martin. And, you know, Andy said, you know, tell him about New York. So, yes, that's an amazing moment. And I would have loved to just have been a fly on the wall. Yeah, I was thinking second, about this question. And, and uh, before you give us the second one. You know, speaking of Hamilton, I was thinking, you know, we had this discussion about this is sort of a different approach. Um, the uh, the Hilton versus United States case, uh, the only case that Hamilton ever argued before the Supreme Court. It's a it's a huge news story. And, and, and it, you know, it's really celebrating. He wins a unanimous decision. And, you know, maybe it's not the world's most dramatic case, but apparently, according to the coverage, you know, he gives a great argument and we have no transcript of it. We don't know what he said. You know, I, I would have loved to, to know what he said. So in order to do that, I would have had to be there. So that would that one, right. I think, maybe makes the B list. But anyway, so but, what's but, your more modern but, but, but Andy, I'm so germaphobic. That day he had a horrible cold. And I'm thinking, <laughs> well, if I watched that, it was, you know, would I have gotten, got, caught his cold or yeah, something? Wear a mask. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. But yeah, I would have loved to see Alexander Hamilton action. And of course, I have great admiration for George Washington, but there's not that much to watch. You know, there's there's a sort of stoical quality to think, you know, certain military decisions, but that's not my thing. The moment where the it, the Constitution actually goes through by a single vote and, and the fate of the continent is really hanging in the balance, that seems to me like a dramatic moment. Mm -hmm. And the second one is also very personal for me, Andy, you gave me 
um, one of the very few copies of um, Abraham Lincoln's life mask, which he um, had plaster applied to his face very shortly before his death. It's not a death mask applied posthumously. It's a life mask. And I think I would have liked to have seen what's called the last speech. It's, uh, he's on the White House lawn. The war has been won. He's gone to Richmond and sort of seen the former Confederate capital. He's given his second inaugural and begun to sketch out Reconstruction as he's imagining it, which will be merciful with malice, you know, toward none, charity for all. But it's it's gonna he's gonna take care of the veterans and their and their families, the widows and the orphans and all the mangled soldiers. He's going to be generous to these frankly, these former traitors, but he also is not going to abandon black folk, okay? He's going to try to do all that. That's going to be a hard thing to do, And but he's begun to sketch out a vision in a haunting and deeply profound second inaugural, but now he's on the White House lawn, and, and it's a little bit more informal, a little bit more celebratory, and for the first time, he actually says that he believes in black suffrage of a certain sort. John Wilkes Booth is actually in the crowd. And, and according to many accounts, that's when he decides to kill Lincoln, to carry out the plan that had been festering in his diseased mind, uh, first to kidnap Lincoln and then uh, during the war and try to hold him hostage and, and, and trade him for something for um, the Confederacy. But now the war is over. But uh, by some accounts, Booth says to his one of his partners in crime who's next to him, oh, so it's um, it's black suffrage. But he doesn't say the word black. He says he uses another word. Let's do it. We're going to we're going to kill him now. It's called Lincoln's Last Speech. And you took a class, um, Andy, at Rutgers from mm-hmm. um, Professor um, Mazur, Louis yes, Mazur, um, wrote a book on on this. But because actually very shortly thereafter, he's assassinated. His words kind of hang in the air, you know, in, in a particularly poignant way, in the same way that MLK's last speech about being seeing the mountaintop. I think that's a really poignant moment in American history and a great moment of a moral progress for Lincoln himself. I think he always wanted to, to, to be that sort of forward and advanced in his thinking, but politically he couldn't be for black suffrage until he won the war. And, uh, and so I think he's, you know, every bit as egalitarian as it's, it's politically possible to be. He's always kind of moving forward. There's a, there's a ratchet here, but th- that's an amazing moment in American history. You know, Andrew Jackson, actually Andrew Johnson doesn't have Lincoln's greatness there. So, Partly it's whom I would want to see. I'd want to see Alexander Hamilton, you know, at his, you know, most perhaps disposit, decisive moment, which is where you're, where you're going to have the Constitution at all. And Lincoln, right before he meets, you know, his maker, just, I would just love to sort of, you know, hear his voice and, and, and see. And there, there are newspaper accounts of this, but just hear for myself, see for myself, you know, what he looked like and sounded like at that, at that moment, which is in part a what might have been mm-hmm. moment. Yeah, it's wonderful. Okay, well, thank you for that question, Brad. Now we have a uh, somewhat more technical question, I guess. This is from uh, Susan Carl, uh, Professor Susan Carl. Uh, she identifies herself a, as... A very, disti- a very distinguished graduate of Yale Law School. Mm-hmm. Yes, she's professor at the uh, Washington College of Law, which is uh, American University. 
Um, so and I think maybe even my brother Vic's classmate, I think maybe Yale Law School class of 88 or around then. She was the reviews and comments editor of the Yale Law Journal in 1988. Okay, so she overlapped with Vic. Um, yeah. Vic um, arrived in 1985 and graduated in 88. And I arrived in 1985 as a professor. Okay, so here's her question. Um, hi, Akil, f- fellow law professor. Hi, here. back. Hi, uh, back. I'd love to hear you discuss how you think the concept of liquidation applies to the 14th Amendment and also how the 19th Amendment should be understood to alter the meaning of the 14th. So liquidation is a technical term that refers to the gloss, as it were, on a recently adopted text. So conventional originalism says you look at the meaning of the text when people are drafting it and debating it and and, and enacting it, and then it's done. So It might be an interesting question in 1788. Is it done when the ninth state says yes? Or, which is slightly before the Hamilton moment that I was talking about in New York, but actually, was it just done at at that ninth state? And so nothing that happens thereafter can affect constitutional meaning. But liquidation says, no, it's not just when the vote is taken. It's also, we should pay attention to how an important text was immediately implemented, especially by its supporters. The concept was foreshadowed by James Madison in the Federalist 37, where he talks about this idea. The great scholar who I think maybe more than anyone in uh, the recent period, who has actually talked about the importance of this early gloss, is my former student, Caleb Nelson. He's a conservative at the University of Virginia, Bill Crystal's brother-in-law, I believe. They, they're married to sisters, former Thomas Clerk. One classic example of liquidation at the founding is, and our audience has heard me talk about this, the decision of 1789, in which actually, if you just look at the Constitution's text, it pretty clearly talks about advice and consent of the Senate being needed for presidential appointments to high executive officials, but doesn't say very clearly whether the Senate's going to need to approve a removal, a disappointment, a firing, or what the rules, in fact, are for that. The first Congress passes a series of statutes that's called the Decision of 1789, and in that first Congress, the language of Article 2 is liquidated. George Washington thinks you elected me president. I need to have confidence in, in the people who are my eyes and ears, my my arms and legs, my appendages, my assistants. I'm the general. They're the lieutenants. When I lose confidence in them, I have to be able to fire them at will. This is from someone who you see was com- commander in chief, who understands that when you lose confidence in someone, you have to be able to remove them. You know, the minute, the nanosecond I begin to suspect Benedict Arnold, I need to have at least the legal authority to to yank him. Maybe I don't in the moment because I want to find out more about him, but I have to have that power at least. So, And Washington is profoundly influenced by the Benedict Arnold incident. So he thinks, if you want me to be president and I'm responsible for my branch, I have to have the ability to fire people at will. And that is our tradition it's 90 on the Supreme Court today, but the text isn't of the Constitution isn't clear 
on this. And in the ratification period, Hamilton, the Federalist number 77, actually says, oh, the Senate needs to approve an appointment. It's also going to need to approve uh, a firing or a removal, which is not at all the case. No one today on the court thinks that the Senate is even permitted to be involved in a firing. It's an improper legislative veto. That's 9-0 again in today's Supreme Court. But that's what Hamilton said in the Federal 77. Now, he changed his mind, and rightly so, because he listened to Washington, and he was never going to be Secretary of Treasury if he didn't understand that Washington was going to have the authority to fire him at will. And Washington couldn't trust his cabinet if he didn't have that authority, couldn't confide in them, which he comes to do. So that's As Professor Carl identifies, that's liquidation at the founding. All sorts of things that George Washington did. He sends secret envoys. Can you do that? He did it. A secret envoy named Governor Morris to Britain. He negotiates treaties without getting the Senate to pre-approve every set of negotiating instructions. Can he do that? He does it, and and Congress approves it. He issues a neutrality proclamation unilaterally. He recognizes the Republican revolutionaries in France as the legitimate successors of, of King Louis. He does all sorts of things that Congress comes to basically approve, but they're all after the fact. They're liquidations. They're glosses, because the Constitution has already been adopted, but especially Article 2, it was designed for Washington so what Washington does early, uh, very soon after adoption has constitutional significance. It counts as much in court as a clear text, sometimes even more. Some of these things are 9-0 in the Supreme Court, and the text isn't clear on negotiating, on the, rec- the power to recognize foreign regimes or derecognize existing regimes or uh, sending secret envoys or the um, uh, firing cabinet officers. Professor Carl's question, Susan's question is about whether there are comparable things in Reconstruction, and oh, yes, they are. There are. And the Reconstruction amendments were drafted by Congress for Congress. The last sections of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, 13 to 13th Amendment Section 2, 14th Amendment Section 5, 15th Amendment Section 2, all say Congress have power in certain ways. And I believe that Congress's statutes implementing the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments have special significance. I'll give you just one example, maybe two. The 13th Amendment says no slavery or involuntary servitude. That's what Section 1 says. And here's what Congress does. It passes a statute saying state governments cannot actually racially discriminate, that black people are entitled to the same rights as white people. And the statute also says everyone born in America is born a citizen. Critics of this say, where do you have the power to do all of that? And Andrew Johnson vetoes the bill because he says, you don't have the power to do that. And Congress overrides the veto. It's the first important override of a veto in American history. But I still haven't answered the question, where does the power come from? They say, oh, the 13th Amendment. And the critics say, 13th Amendment says no slavery. No involuntary servitude. You're now prohibiting governmental race discrimination generally, not in voting, but in, in, in other domains. You're coming up with rules for every northern state, many, many of which haven't had slavery in 75 years. You're coming up with rules limiting Massachusetts and Vermont and Maine, and they haven't had slavery, you know, the longest time. 
And Congress says, well, we think that Section 2 of the 13th Amendment gives us very broad power to do things beyond mere slavery and voluntary servitude. We think the word appropriate in Section 2 gives us McCulloch-like power to have a very sweeping laws to sort of implement the broader vision. And the critics say, well, yeah, but you're saying that after the thing was adopted. You know, this is this is after the fact. It's uh, And they're saying, actually, we said some of this McCulloch stuff while we were proposing the amendment. It's not just after the fact. But people say, well, well, it wasn't very clear. You know, you're really going way beyond what anyone thought. Well, that's liquidation. And you might think it goes too far. But here's now the key, Susan, when it comes to Reconstruction. There was a 14th Amendment after that and the 15th Amendment after that. And Congress proposes a 14th Amendment with the same broad Section 5 language. And, it, and now everyone in America knows what Congress thinks that broad language means. It means like almost a blank check to Congress or a very, very broad check. And if you don't like what they've done under Section 2, don't vote to ratify the 14th. But America did. And it ratified the 15th again. So, so the liquidation is particularly interesting because it's after the fact when it comes to the 13th, but before the fact when it comes to the 14th and 15th. And these civil rights statutes are particularly interesting. There's another one passed in 1875 after the 15th Amendment in honor of Charles Sumner that protects not just voting rights, but jury service rights of black Americans. I think based on the 15th Amendment and therefore helping cement, helping to uh, fix in place, to liquidate, to gloss a very, very broad understanding of congressional reconstruction power, which is what the court didn't understand at all in the Shelby County versus Holder case, um, which they invalidated parts of the Voting Rights Act, which I continue to believe is the worst case of the last 20 years. You know, it's interesting, of course, that uh, Congress has the power to enforce these uh, provisions by appropriate legislation, says Congress. They still present it to the president. Yes. They're not the independent Congress. Oh, brilliant. ISL. Yes, because sometimes <laughs> Congress means and, the, you know, the House, the Senate and the president. And sometimes it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Just so, Andy. OK. And now uh, so she goes on to say, and it's pro I suppose, suppose it might be a related answer, but. She go on goes on to ask you how the Nineteenth Amendment can be oh, right, understood right. to alter the meaning of the Fourteenth Amendment. The Fourteenth Amendment is just about civil rights, in my view. It's not about political rights like voting. That's why you need the Fifteenth Amendment. The Fourteenth Amendment is surely about no race discrimination, but only race discrimination in the domain of what was called civil rights. Well, today we think civil rights and voting rights are indistinguishable. They're basically, you know, Siamese twins. No, back then. Civil rights were uh, was a phrase used in contradistinction to political rights. What were political rights? Basically four things. Voting, office holding or voting in the legislature or being voted for, jury service or voting in the jury, if you prefer, and a militia du military duty. These four were rights and obligations that clustered together. If you had one, you tended to have the others. If you could vote, typically you could serve in a jury. If you could vote, unless otherwise specified, you could be voted for. Whoever served in juries could serve in the military. Whoever served in the military typically could vote. They clustered together, and there were two sociological patterns that helped made sense of this distinction. 
One is the rights of women. Women have civil rights when they're unmarried. They can sue. They can be sued. They can own property. I worship in church. You can bring lawsuits. Um, when you get married under the laws of couverture, some women lost certain rights, but that was in theory a voluntary relinquishment, alienability, uh, back what we were talking about before. But the four things that a woman typically could not do, an unmarried white woman was vote, vote in a legislature, serve in government, vote on a jury, serve on a jury, or serve in, in the military. Okay. So, the 14th Amendment in effect says we're going to give black men the rights of white women, civil rights, not political rights. Here's another context in which they were thinking about what does a keel get? You know, they weren't thinking about a keel personally, but what, what do I get? What does a citizen of Connecticut get under the privileges and immunities clause of Article 4, which is about interstate privileges and immunities? What do I get when I go to New York? I, I get treated basically as a New Yorker for almost all purposes. I can own property in New York, real estate which foreigners are not allowed to do. And some states right now are talking about trying to prevent Chinese people from from owning real property in Texas. That was an article I just read this week. Akil can own property in New Jersey, can sue a New Jersey state court and be sued in a New Jersey state court, bring a declaratory judgment on the same terms as every New Jersey citizen, can worship in a New Jersey church, can open up a business in New Jersey. I'm entitled to make contracts in New Jersey, to pretty much be treated as a New Jersey person for all civil rights, basically. But here are four things I can't do unless I actually move to New Jersey and become a full-fledged citizen of New Jersey, which I'm allowed to do. But until I do that, I don't vote in a New Jersey election or serve in a New Jersey legislature or serve on a New Jersey jury or a New Jersey militia. So two different features of the world that actually make sense of this distinction that they had between civil and political rights. The rights of women and the rights of -of out-of-staters. They're citizens in various ways. They can sue in diversity jurisdiction and all the rest, but they don't have political rights. So the 14th Amendment is about civil rights for blacks, and that's where you're going to need the 15th Amendment for about voting rights. And the Civil Rights Act, the so-called Civil Rights Act, actually has one voting rights provision. It says not only do blacks get to um, vote equally, they get to serve on juries equally. And that's a gloss on the 15th Amendment. You see, that was after the fact, that's liquidation. Now, the 14th Amendment does not say race, and it could have said race and it doesn't. So I think it's actually a higher level of equality. It's about racial equality in civil rights. And the 15th Amendment says, oh, political rights, racial equality. But I think the 14th Amendment is an ERA of sorts. It's no discrimination on the basis of birth status. Anyone born in America, born under the flag, is born a full and equal citizen with equal rights to everyone else born under the flag. That you're born equal, we're created equal, dedicates the proposition that all men are created equal. These are Lincoln's amendments, in effect, even though he's in the grave. And birth equality, creational equality is we're born equal, whether we're black or white, we're born black or white or brown, uh, whether we're born male or female, whether we're born in wedlock or out of wedlock, whether we're born Jew or Gentile, whether we're born fifth, first in the family or fifth. No special primogeniture and inheritance rules. If that's the 14th Amendment vision, birth equality, it's about sex as well as race because people are born male or female, but it only applies to civil rights. And that's true for race equality as well. So we're going to need a 15th Amendment for voting rights for blacks, and we're going to need a 19th Amendment for voting rights for women. Once the 19th Amendment comes along, I think it's about 
women voting and women voting or serving in the legislature and being voted for, women voting in a jury and, and women being have military service, which we still don't quite have, but we're almost there at the Supreme Court. So in my view, Susan, Professor Carl, I believe that 14 uh, Amendment, 14A plus 19A equals ERA, civil rights for women plus political rights for women, the 14th Amendment plus the 19th Amendment is civil rights plus political rights, which is, in effect, I think, the waterfront, covers everything. And so I think we already, in effect, have ERA. I'm for a new ERA, just because why not say it again once more with feeling. But your question on the 19th Amendment, in my view, is when when we read the Constitution holistically, we have to actually you know, read these amendments as if they're, they're, uh, they create a sort of a system of rights, civil rights plus political rights for women and for blacks. But, um, I mean, her question asks how the 19th alters the meaning of the 14th. So you're, you're describing how what it adds to the 14th. You could um, do it. You could say it either so, way. Well, but I mean... So you've talked about how the 14th Amendment changes our understanding of the Second Amendment. It does. So does the 19th Amendment alter our understanding of the 14th Amendment in some way? Well, you know, yes, that word male in Section 2 of the 14th Amendment is now completely, male can't mean male anymore, okay? So, oh, so let's actually go through, this is, wow, Andy, you're so damn good. And, and Professor Carl, maybe this is what you were asking about. And, and wow, it's brilliant. Okay. So here are options if we are clause bound literalists, which we should not be. Here's 14th Amendment section two. It says, and, and what's it all about? It's getting rid of the three fifths clause because now it's five fifths. Okay. Cause we've gotten rid of slavery. Oh, this is a big problem because now unless we do something, the South is going to come back in with more seats than ever before, and they're not letting people vote because we don't yet have a 15th Amendment. So, And this is connected to what Jack Balkan was telling you about what the story is behind the 14th Amendment stuff, not just Section 1, but he's saying, oh, pay attention to Section 3, and I'm saying, oh, pay attention four. to Section 5. Um, I'm saying Section 4. I'm saying pay attention to Section 5, which is about congressional power. Well, let's talk about Section 2. Section 2, because now just to repeat – the 13th Amendment's been ratified. So now there's no more three-fifths. It's become five-fifths. When the South wants back in, and remember Jack was telling, and this is what Kim Roosevelt and we were talking about, because the South isn't being let back in immediately. And I say, and rightly so, because they don't let black people vote, you see. But initially, they say, we want back in, and we're going to have more seats. It's going to become five-fifths, and we get to decide who votes. And the framers, Republicans in Congress say, oh, shit. <laughs> This, this is a real problem. Uh, this is what I call in class, and literally the oh shit moment. Okay. Section, eventually they're going to say, we're not letting you back in unless you let black people vote. But, and before they've worked all that out, section two comes along and they say, okay, we're not going to force you initially to let black people vote. That's going to be an, another thing that happens a little bit later in, in Reconstruction. But if you don't let black people vote, you don't get to count them for apportionment. So here's actually the rule that they come up with. The representation in the House and in the Electoral College is going to be based basically on the whole population, five-fifths, okay? But 
But, 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 when the right to vote in various elections is denied to any of the male inhabitants of such a state, being 21 years of age and citizens, or in any way abridged except for basically participation in the rebellion or other crime, whenever um, a state doesn't let certain people vote, males over 21 citizens, then their representation in the House and Electoral College will be rateably proportionally reduced. Fine. If you don't want to let black people vote, fine. If they're 30% of your population, you've just lost 30% of your seats in the House and the Electoral College. Okay, fine. Now, some of that's mooted out when you have the 15th Amendment saying everyone's going to actually, uh, blacks are going to have to vote equally, and other restrictions that are imposed on the southern states. And note that this formally isn't about race discrimination. If you just do something that as a practical matter, you, you have a poll tax, you have a literacy test, just when a whole bunch of people are ineligible, even if it's not formally race-based, you know, we're going to cut your seats, but only among male citizens above 21, except for crimes. Okay. Now add the 19th Amendment to the equation. Here are the possibilities. If we have, let's say, a literacy test, do we only pay attention to the literacy test as applied to the male citizens? Does male steal mean male in 14th Amendment Section 2? That seems a discrimination against you know, women under the 19th Amendment. So Akil's position is actually male now means in Section 2, male or female. And Akil's position is after the 18-year-old vote amendment, 21 now means 18. But it doesn't say so very clearly, you see. That's the interaction, Susan, you know, of the 19th and the 14th if we're thinking about things holistically. That's interesting stuff. You could that stuff could come into play when you start to talk about like military and the draft and things like all, that. All all sorts of things if we see the Constitution mm-hmm. holistically. I believe that nineteen plus two equals women in the military. Second Amendment says basically originally the original vision is a military vision. The people are your militia, are your military. The military are your voters. Okay, that's the big vision. Those who fight, vote. Those who vote, fight. Okay, big picture. Now women vote. Well, then women should fight. 19 plus 2 equals women in the military. And now there's some fancy footwork because I'm saying they should, in the army, and you can say, well, the Second Amendment is only about the militia. We don't have the militia anymore. We got rid of it after the Civil War. So I have to say, oh, the Civil War got rid of the militia. Today's militia equivalent is twofold. At the local level, it's called the police force. And so we have to have women in the police equally. And at the federal level, it's the army. I believe that today's militia equivalent is the police force at the local level and the army at the national level. And after the 19th Amendment, so the Second Amendment says basically that these four structures should look like your citizenry. Your militia should be your citizenry. Well, today that means the cops should look like America and The army should look like America. And the 19th Amendment tells me, you know, what looks like American voters are half women. So they should be half of your cops and half of your jurors and half of your army. 
Yes. Um, maybe in a one day half of the legislature, people get to vote on, uh, you know, for that. But, but Susan, these are illustrations of what our friend Bruce Ackerman would call intergenerational synthesis, the founding Second Amendment in light of the 20th century 19th Amendment, the reconstruction 14th Amendment in light of the 20, 20th century suffrage amendment. That, that's what we're doing. We're trying to read the Constitution holistically. And if women are really half of the voters, I say, well, of course, they should be half of the jurors. And of course, they should be half of the military. And it's, at the very least, it's illegal to exclude them from the military simply because they're, they're women. Yeah, affirmative action, I think, might be another matter you know, to get to half. But, uh, but, but, but they but shouldn't at any be excluded rate, by certainly law. Certainly, they shouldn't be excluded. But in, as late as 1960, Andy... The Supreme Court, in a case called Hoyt versus Florida, unanimously upholds jury rules that have the effect of excluding women from jurors. Here's what the rule is. Oh, you can serve, but you have to opt in. And people don't want to opt into the jury because they think it's a hassle. So you, you basically have all male juries and, and the court sees no problem. This is as late as the Warren Court, 1960. It's not until Taylor versus Louisiana, 1975, that the Supreme Court says, no, women actually can't be, you can't have laws that basically exclude women from jury service. Okay, so great question there. And I think all these all these questions were interesting. Uh, we've got a lot more, but uh, that's it for today. So we'll revisit more questions from time to time. And, and we may not do all question episodes, maybe one question here and there as well. So thank you very much, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.